You're now listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, Episode 6. Welcome to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for operators of large-scale real estate portfolios. My name is Brandon Hall, and I'm your host. Together with my co-host, Dylan Brown, we talk about tax and legal strategies, and we bring on operators of large portfolios for in-depth discussions on how they grew their business. We hope you enjoy, and with that, let's get to it. Elaine, welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, we're very excited to have you. You've been a, uh, how many times were you on the Tax Smart Real Estate Investor Podcast? Like twice, right? We have you there twice? At least. Yeah. And then I did the, I did the summit one year and some other things. Oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're going to be spinning that back up in 2024. But uh, no, I, we're excited to have you on today. I know we've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about. But before we get into the meat of it, tell us where you're at today. What does the portfolio look like today? And briefly tell us about how you kind of got there. What does that journey look like? Yeah, excellent questions. So my name is Elaine Stagerberg. My husband, Nick, and I run our company together, which is just super fun. It's like one of the highlights of my life to get to run a company with him. So we own and operate Black Swan Real Estate. We're a vertically integrated real estate investment firm. We have about 300 million of assets under management. One of the things that's interesting about us is we do both single family homes and large multifamily. About two thirds of our portfolio is in Rochester, Minnesota, which is where we live. And about a third is in Tacoma, Washington. And as I mentioned, we're vertically integrated. So we work directly with investors. We raise our own capital. Nick's a broker and brokers a lot of our deals. We have our own property management company. We only manage what we own. So we're second party management. We think that's really important for operations and driving efficiency and control and cost savings. And then we've even gone you know, further and further down the vertical integration chain over the last several years. So we have our own maintenance, lawn and snow, cleaning, just as many services as we can to take very good care of our buildings. And we came at this as just you know mom and pop real estate investors. So we started investing in single family homes right after we got married. We've always had a burr business model. We've never sold a single asset. We're just big believers in you know buying that thing, fixing it up, forcing the value as much as possible to pull the capital out, keeping that and benefiting from the cash flow, the debt pay down, future opportunities for forced appreciation, future market appreciation. And then doing it over and over again, big part of how we've been able to scale so quickly is by never selling anything that we joke, we named the company Black Swan Real Estate, but we should have named it Golden Goose Real Estate. So that's where we came from. And just, you know, people started seeing the success that we were having in real estate and asked if they could invest passively alongside us. So we started doing some joint ventures. Then we started our private equity fund model. And here we are today. That's amazing. Amazing. I remember when you guys first joined our CPA firm, I think your tax return was only like 800 bucks or something. Yeah. (laughs) That was what, back in 17 or 18? I mean, you guys have come a long way in really a handful of years. Yeah. Our tax return this year was like 4,000 pages. Like, I I don't even know how a human can interpret that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, at least at least you try. There's some 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 people tend to not. But anyway, that's beside the point. So, what do you think led you? I mean, a lot of people talk about scale and wanting to get big and everything, but again, like you guys have been on a rocket ship. So, what's one of the key differentiators do you think that really helped you scale up that other people are missing? That, you know, that's an excellent question. Kind of first and foremost, I think that once people understand that scale actually makes things easier, 
It doesn't make things harder. So that's like the first thing is there's like a limiting belief that scale makes things harder. Scale makes things easier. So just like a quick example, if you have, you know, 100 units, you might only be able to hire one maintenance person. But if you have 150, maybe it makes sense to hire two maintenance people and then they can cover for each other for vacations, illnesses. You inevitably have those jobs where, you you know, you need four sets of hands you know, four hands, you're moving an appliance or something like that. If, if you know, someone leaves the organization, you're, you're covered right there. So first and foremost is identifying that scale makes things easier, not harder. And then when I think about our journey with scale, we were very committed to scaling our own real estate portfolio as quickly as possible. We were very committed to vertical integration. In the beginning, we just said, you know, we'll manage our own properties. We didn't think we'd have, you know, our own maintenance and lawn and snow. But again, scale makes things easier. So all of a sudden, oh, if we have all these lawns across the city to mow, we might as well hire the people, have the equipment. And then when we made the decision to move into working with passive investors, that was a tough one for me. So we had reached financial independence through our own portfolio. I was working as a physician. I'm a psychiatrist. Nick had a career in tech. And along the way, people started asking if they could invest alongside us. And I was just not very interested in a typical private equity model where there's prefs and waterfalls and catch up prefs and all these different splits and all these different fees. It just felt so opaque to me. It felt like it was like purposefully challenging to make it hard for a typical passive investor to understand. But most importantly, it just didn't make sense to me that, hey, if I had built my own wealth through a Burr business model where I bought a property, I renovated it, I did a cash out refi, I never sold it. I wanted to keep that model in private equity. Like, why would I, you know, invest other people's wealth using an entirely different model that I hadn't used before? And I wanted to make it very simple. I wanted to say our investors bring the money. We do all the work. Our investors get all of their capital back until they're completely repaid. We have no fees at the asset management level. And then from there, we split the profits 50-50 for that indefinite hold. And I'm sure, you know, we'll get into talking about how we structured that and all of that. But that was the thing was I was really committed to saying, you know what, I'm willing to go into working with investors and really scaling this thing. But I'm only willing to do that if I do it with the same model I used to grow my own wealth. And then it turns out that that became such a huge strategic advantage for us with raising capital. That's fascinating. Now, you've mentioned vertical integration a few times. I want you to tell people how you actually vertically integrate, because we hear a lot of people and a lot of large, sophisticated operators say that they're vertically integrated. But I don't think anybody's as vertically integrated as you are. Well, that is the um, ultimate compliment. Thank you. <laughs> you know the way to my heart after all these years working together. <laughs> I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you guys have your own trash collection service, right? We don't have that yet. That's coming up. Okay, you didn't. Okay. Yeah, You're adding no, that though. We are adding yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Okay. I mean, you're like taking it to the next level. Like that's, you're that's really controlling those costs, which is fascinating to me. Yeah. So, you know, kind of thinking of the value chain, right? That's what we're talking about with vertical integration. We work directly with our own investors. You are listening to the investor relations department of our company. I'm excited to work with investors. Investors are eager to talk to me. I have some people that help with paperwork and those sorts of things, but I'm eager to raise our own capital to have that personal relationship with our investors. Nick's a broker and he brokers a lot of our deals, helps to, with negotiations, getting the deal to the closing table, all of those things. We manage all of our own properties. We have a maintenance company that does most of our own maintenance. We don't do things that require a license or a permit at this point. So like we don't have a plumber, an electrician, HVAC on staff. We still vend that out. 
Um, this year in 2023, we brought in what we call our facilities department. So that's our unit turnovers, common area cleaning. They do like very minor, like sweeping up leaves, kind of outdoor landscaping work. We brought in construction and rehab. So we now, in addition to our maintenance team, we now have a team that does a lot of our renovations. And then we brought in lawn and snow. So we bought all of the plows, the trucks, the tractors, the lawnmowers, you know, all of the small tools that people need for lawn and snow, hired all of the folks. So really looking at everything in the value chain and asking ourselves, how can we have control and quality and consistency with that piece? How can we have responsibility for it? I think sometimes people are afraid of responsibility. I love responsibility and it really allows me to sleep very well at night knowing that when I say to an investor, hey, invest in the company, that I have control and quality over all of those pieces of the chain. And then it really drives down costs. So, I mean, we could do a whole episode on vertical integration, but if you think about it from, you know, real estate is such a beautiful industry to do vertical integration because for every dollar you save in costs by eliminating a third party vendor, you keep that dollar at the asset level. Well, in our market, it's a five cap market. So it's a 20 X multiple. So every dollar of expenses we can shave off of the PL, we increase the value of the property by about $20. That's a huge win-win situation because we can get to our cash out refi faster. We, you know, we enjoy the splits from our properties. So I think all industries benefit from vertical integration, but particularly real estate because of NOI and cap rate. So Elaine, all the things that you're talking about, they are seeming to me from an outside perspective, just a whole lot of services that you provide that really benefit your investors. And if you go back to a comment you made maybe four or five minutes ago, where you told us that everything is based on just a split arrangement in these funds that you're operating, and you're not charging kind of the typical fees that you see all over the marketplace where there's acquisition fees and asset management fees and disposition fees and fees on fees for all I know. I'm just curious how you reconcile providing so much value to then deciding to go such a different direction on the fund model that you have for your investors. So maybe you can start speaking to us a little bit about that and the theory behind how you you yourself get compensated and how Black Swan gets compensated for all these what seem to be really valuable services for your investors. I love that question because anytime we're in an economic relationship with someone, we should understand all of the incentives because that drives human behavior, right? I'm a psychiatrist by training. Humans are driven by incentives. That doesn't make us bad people. That's how humans behave, right? So we have to ask ourselves, what are the incentives of the other people we're in relationship with and what are our incentives? So Nick and I really had a philosophical belief all the way from the beginning that when there's GP level fees, you know, the fees that you mentioned, asset management fee, acquisition fee, disposition fee, loan recourse fee, whatever, that encourages a set of behaviors that may not be in alignment with the limited partners. So take, for example, there may be a great apartment building that the GP can think, huh, it's performing pretty well, but I can sell it, get a disposition fee. I'm fairly certain my investors are just going to reinvest the capital with me. Then I'll get an acquisition fee to buy the property next door when it might have been in the best interest of the investors to just keep the original property and not have all of the transaction costs and other things that go along with that. But if a GP is incentivized by fees, humans are going to behave the way they're incentivized. So we just eliminated all of that. We just completely eliminated that layer from our fund structure. And then we return all of our capital to our investors until they're completely repaid. Again, as we were working through the structure, we just asked ourselves, what would be like a no-brainer decision if we were the ones investing with someone else? And it was that we would want to be de-risked from the deal as quickly as possible. 
And then after that, we have a 50-50 split for that indefinite hold period and that infinite rate of return period. And an astute listener might say, both an astute GP and an astute LP might say, wow, that's a really high split. A GP might be very excited of, huh, I would like to own 50% of the real estate that I own and manage. And an LP might be thinking, huh, well, other people have like a 70-30 split or an 80-20 split. The secret behind the scenes is that all GPs work toward a 50-50 split with all their fees and waterfalls and all these things. They're baculating into a 50-50 split. But so it might look like a 70-30 split, but by the time you add on all the fees, it ends up being essentially a 50-50 split. But the GP gets compensated first with fees, and then there's a split. I don't think that's right. I think LPs should be completely de-risked from the deal, and then GPs should only make money the same way LPs make money, which, which is from the actual profit of the actual real estate, and they should only make money this after the LPs make money. And so that's how we structured it. And, you know, the way we're compensated is with a large equity stake in our large portfolio. And we're willing to delay that gratification for many years until we get to that cash out refi, because we have a portfolio of real estate that we personally own that, you know, created our financial freedom, pays our own mortgage, puts food on our own table, takes care of our kids. That's another thing I think people should think about is, are they investing with someone who already has financial freedom? through the same type of investment that they're thinking about, you know, working in. It just boils my blood when GPs will say, well, I have financial freedom through real estate. Well, they, they have financial freedom because they're collecting all these fees. Again, that's a whole other, you know, episode to think about, but. Well, it's so a question, Elaine, do you have asset management fees? We do not. No, so we do not have an acquisition fee, an asset management fee, loan recourse, disposition, um, capital event fees. We've, we've eliminated all of those. How do you eat? Our own portfolio, the real estate portfolio that we created. So, so when you say you've got the financial freedom, like you are effectively to a degree, you're covering your own operations from your own portfolio. Is that a way to think about it? Like, I mean, there's got to be a bunch of, I mean, this is a leading question because I know there are a lot of expenses related to running a fund. Right. You're not charging back a management fee to cover those expenses or so those expenses flowing through your fund and then you're splitting the net. Is that how you're working it? So let's kind of take a step back. So in our personal lives, our own mortgage, our own kids or whatever, that's covered by our own portfolio that we created before we started working with passive investors. At the asset management level, we have no fees. And really, I find that if you're vertically integrated, there are very few expenses at the asset management level. There's like the tax return, some attorney type stuff, but there's really not that much. And then at the property management level, we do charge a market rate property management fee. Okay. So you are... Okay. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Because this is like no simple thing to run a fund of this size. I mean, you're... Right. Or yeah, we have 50 full-time size, employees right? and you know, yeah. all, of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. all of the equipment and everything. So just as though we would hire a third-party property manager and whatever rate we would pay that third-party property manager, our company collects that property management fee. Okay. And then with all these pieces of vertical integration... The goal is to run them at essentially net zero profit so that we can keep the profit at the asset level. Because again, if you think about the way our fund is structured and how real estate works with NOI, sure, we could make a dollar from our property management company. That's great. But if we kept that dollar at any given building and it's at a five cap, which is a 20x multiple, well, then that building is worth $20 more. And with a 50-50 split, our investors get 10 of it, we get 10 of it. We'd rather make $10 than $1. So all the like lawn services and maintenance and facilities and all of that, 
we run those at basically break even so that we can provide the services to the building to bring the total costs of the building as low as possible to increase the value of the buildings as much as possible. Yeah, I totally understand that. And that's a very, very interesting and great approach, I think, especially from an LP perspective. Now, my question to you is, you mentioned earlier that you you have this delayed gratification, right? You've got all this equity. That's how you're effectively getting compensated or the lion's share of your compensation that you're going to take home. Mm-hmm. How does your strategy or your view on that tr- change given our current interest rate environments? I presume that that kicks out that, like you got to delay even further that gratification mm-hmm. on some properties. Yeah, you know, excellent question. So, so far, it has not delayed our plan. So our plan is to return capital in five years or less. Historically, it's never taken more than three. And we're still on target with that. So as interest rates went up through 2022 and 2023, we were looking at the buildings that we had acquired in 2019 and 2020. And we've still been able to have successful cash out refis. And the way we were able to do that was by placing a second mortgage on that property. So we went to the original bank that held the first lien. All of our debt is with local regional banks. It's all fixed rate debt. That's another thing I highly recommend to people is have relationships with your bankers and have relationships with banks who are interested in your success. Don't borrow from debt funds. Bad idea. Um, <laughs> borrow from banks um, and get fixed rate debt. So that's what we did. But those people also knew our business plan and that our business plan was a Burr business model. So even as interest rates went up, we went to them and we said, hey, you know that our plan has always been a cash out refi. There's no way we want to get rid of this mortgage at, you know, three and a quarter, but we've increased the value of the building this much. Can we put a second on top of it at say, you know, five and a half, but our blended interest rate is still like 3.75 and they were happy to do it because they have the first lien. So adding that second lien isn't risky for them. Oh, oh, so you're using the same bank for this. The same bank will... Exactly. The only way it works. A a, a different bank is not going to want... Units. Well, that was going to be one of my questions. I was like, yeah. well, hey, hold on a second. How is this working? Um, so the first mortgage, how long is that fixed rate lasting for you? Everything in the portfolio is at least five years. And we try right. as hard as we can to get ten, a 10-year term with a five-year reprice of a max of 2%. So I'd say probably 60 to 70% of the debt in the portfolio is a 10-year term with a five-year reprice. And then the other 30% is a five-year term. I mean, that, that's that's great. And obviously, I'm sure that you're watching 2022 and 2023 and going, thank God we did that. Um, we very well at night. Because, uh, I mean, other people haven't done that, right? So, I mean, did you have some foresight or was it just kind of, this is just <laughs> how we believe that we should acquire and hold assets? Or this is how we reduce risk? Yeah. Um, it's not like we had a crystal ball. It's not like I knew that interest rates, you know, were going to go up this fast, you know, it, it, as close in time as they did. But I did have some sense that, hey, a pandemic is not going to last forever. Like if you look at, I mean, I'm a physician, but I am not an epidemiologist or anything like that. I got on Google, just like everybody else could. And I typed in things like all of the pandemics in human history and how long does a pandemic usually last and all of these things. And a typical pandemic, even pre-vaccines, lasts about two to four years. So I thought, huh, with this how fast as we're working on a vaccine, this pandemic's probably going to last two to three years and then things are going to get back to normal. So that guided like all of our behavior. It's why we acquired so much real estate when people were struggling with the eviction moratorium and all of those things. We said, oh my gosh, we can ride this out. This eviction moratorium is not going to last five, 10 years. It's going to last a few years. Um, there was vacancy in downtown properties in Rochester, Minnesota 
because, you know, there was vacancy in, in a lot of buildings through COVID. And we thought there's not going to be vacancy forever. Downtowns are going to come back. Office is going to come back. We're at Mayo Clinic, which is a hospital. People need to be there with hands on the patient. They're going to come back. Surprise, surprise, they did. And same thing with interest rates. We said, these rates are really, really low. And we want to get as much real estate as we possibly can during this time. But they have nowhere to go except up. And so, you know, it was a tough decision, right? We could have, you know, have signed loans at, say, like, two and a half variable or 3% fixed. Well, that's, you know, a half a percent off of 3% is a big spread. Which a lot of people did, right? Yeah. A lot of people yeah. did, yeah. We thought, you know, we just want that 3% fixed for as long as possible. And then now we're doing the second mortgage strategy to still be able to continue our cash out refi strategy despite rising interest rates. Love it. That's awesome. You've said a lot of things in the last five minutes that we're talking about. I didn't have a crystal ball, but we just knew we wanted to do this. But what I see is maybe you were doing things with a much longer term vision than other people. And is that true? And if so, why did other people in your similar shoes operating funds, maybe with those 70-30 splits and all the other fancy fees and calculations you're talking about, why are they looking at it with such a different lens? Is it because they're all just looking to make a quick buck and sell the building in three to five years? Is that, is that the main driver behind all this? You know, that's an excellent question. And I think what you just proposed, I think there's some truth to that. And, and again, I don't think that makes them bad human beings. It makes them, you know, human beings that are, that have behavior in line with incentives and motivations. Um, it's really sexy to buy an apartment building and fix a little bit of it up and sell it a few years later for a big number, right? Like just like saying that, you can just like feel the adrenaline of all the excitement of, man, we closed it. Oh, we painted a few units, changed a couple of floors. Man, we sold it. You get to you know, shoot that out to all your investors. Here's my IRR, all of these things. You get kind of on this like treadmill. And I just always had the belief that number one, it was very confusing to me that people would talk about passive income. But if you're only getting passive income for a few years and then you kind of have to get back on the train, that kind of defeats the point of passive income. People would talk about generational wealth. Well, a generation is far more than three to five years. So that was confusing to me. And people would talk a lot about bonus depreciation, right? That motivated a lot of decisions over the last several years. And I love bonus depreciation. We've not paid federal taxes in many, many years. But it just didn't quite make sense to me that you get this huge tax advantage and then you're recapturing the depreciation like before you turn around, you know. So there were there were just so many things in our journey that we just kind of looked at the prevailing model and it just did not seem intuitive to us. And we just very much followed our intuition, which was, hey, when we were doing single family homes with our own money in our own backyard, we were buying them, we were fixing them up, we were putting fixed rate debt on them, we were holding them. We were re-leveraging them as they became more valuable in the future. We never had a plan to sell any of them. Let's just do that at a much bigger scale. And I think you speak to it that if you know there's all sorts of fees that can come from transacting the real estate, well, humans behave you know as they're motivated to behave by incentives. So it just made so much sense to me to build true passive income that lasts for decades, to build true generational wealth. Gary Keller says that Real estate is a yo-yo on an escalator. So we know there's going to be ups and downs. In a, you know, our, our fund structure is at least a 25-year hold. We know there's going to be ups and downs, but we also know that we're getting as many dollars as we can on that escalator going up. And then to really enjoy the tax benefits, to get all that bonus depreciation and then just keep carrying it forward, carrying it forward, carrying it forward, not having to worry about depreciation recapture. That's amazing. What I'm hearing, though, is if I was to play devil's advocate and I was to be somebody in the shoes who doesn't necessarily have a personal portfolio, who is 
you know, able to pay for their own food and put it on the table because of that and able to have this delayed gratification. I guess, what do you say to somebody who really can't afford to operate a model, a fund model, where they're not able to take any fees and they're relying on some of that uh, to, I guess, essentially keep the lights on in the office? Because to me, it sounds like the model you're proposing is fantastic for somebody who has this long-term vision and wants to operate the real estate as if it was all their own, right? But we just simply, I don't see a lot of that. I think you're kind of a black swan, if you will, in, in kind of the market. So. <laughs> Hard work through the years of creating your own portfolio so that you can get there, right? It it took Nick and I about eight or nine years to, to create our portfolio that generated our financial freedom. And I think that I think the outcomes speak for themselves, right? We've raised about $60 million over about three years. And we opened our very first private equity fund, Black Swan Real Estate Fund One, $10 million. We raised 11. We raised that in 24 hours. I think investors saw, wow, these are people that have had a lot of success with their own money. These are people who are prioritizing my needs so far ahead of their own. They must really believe in these deals if the only way they're going to profit is from the split. When they say that they're going to deliver a certain return to me, they must really believe that because that's the only way they can get return. But it took time to put in those years to build that portfolio. But the magic comes from putting in the hard work and doing the tough years so that you can then you know, build something that's unlike anything else that's available to people. And I think, you know, so if, if someone came to me and said, yeah, hey, I, I want to, you know, I want to run a fund, but I can't, or I want to run a fund and, you know, I have to have fees in order to, you know, take care of my own family. I'd say, well, why don't you, you know, spend your time and effort building your own portfolio, building credibility, building relationships, and then do the fund later from a position of strength instead of doing the fund with your own needs ahead of the needs of your investors. It's a really good point that you bring up. And it kind of makes me want to ask this next question, which is why do it in the first place? I know we kind of talked about it a little bit in the first on how you had so much apprehension just to say, hey, we're already financially free. We could kick it back on the weekends and do whatever we wanted to do because we've got this portfolio that's paying our life. But why then do we have the motivation to go forward and expand and now have $300 million of assets under management and all of that then? I guess I'm kind of bringing it full circle back to the Yeah. So that was the million dollar question for probably about a year where Nick and I, you know, we would talk about that at night again. I, you know, I run the company day to day with my husband and we would ask ourselves that of like, what's next for us, right? We were in our mid thirties at that point. We had a few children. Um, like, do we keep growing our own portfolio? Do we just settle into medicine and tech, the careers that we were in? What do we do here? And I think, I think there were two, there was one answer for both of us. And then there was a separate answer for each of us. I'm going to try to speak for Nick as best I can. I think the first answer is humans love to work. Like Taylor Swift was in Argentina last night singing to 68,000 people. The girl's a billionaire. Like she does not need to sing to anybody, right? Like humans love to work. They love to do their craft. They love to create. And so that's something I would plant in the mind of you know, GPs or LPs or whatever this quest for financial freedom, I promise you when you get there, you know, I spend most of my time today with people who are financially free. Like we all work. We love to work. We love to create. So, so that's what we kept saying to ourselves is we're too young to just sit back and do nothing. What do we want to do with this, our skills and, and the experiences that have been given to us in life? And then for me, um, I had all these relationships with physicians. Many of them were friends of mine and they wanted what I had. 
They wanted the passive income that I have. And so I felt a need to serve them to say, wow, this has really changed my family. I have so many freedoms. We're able to take time off of work. We're able to take care of Nick's aging mother before her passing, all of these things. Man, I really want to create that for other people. I think that's like kind of a more feminine thing to do. Nick wanted to keep building. Nick was excited about, I want to own this building and that building and fix up this building. I want to own this whole city block. I want to build this townhome uh, or this neighborhood of townhomes. I think that's kind of like more of like a masculine thing, right? So that's how we you know, run the company. I work with investors. You know, we joke that I raise the money, he spends it. And it allowed us to both, you know, to work together, which was exciting and important to us. And then to keep building the legacy and to help other families build their legacy and to build the property management company and all of the you know team members that we have and how we're helping them you know in their careers and their income. So it was just all about how could we continue to grow and to contribute and finding a really big why around that. If it was just to continue to add you know numbers to our own net worth, this would be 0% interesting to me. But when it's about helping other families, It's so exciting to me. It's so motivating. I love hearing from our investors, you know, hey, I plan to use this income to put so-and-so through college or, you know, to cut back to 0.8 at work or whatever it is. That's what I think about when I'm making decisions. I see the investors in my mind. I see, you know, their kids going to college or them spending time with their aging parents or whatever. And that's what keeps it very motivating for me. And then the other thing, it wasn't exactly what you asked, but I want to make sure we, we bring it in here, is for my fellow GPs, right? I want to be an example that you don't have to follow the cookie cutter private equity model. If you're looking at it and you're looking at the fees and the prefs and the waterfalls and the catch up prefs and all these different splits and things, and you're thinking like, this just doesn't seem right to me, go out and create your own model. Talk with your attorneys, talk with your accountants, say, how can we put this into the PPM? How can we structure this into the operating agreement? You have so much flexibility in private equity be innovative, give to the market something that's totally different. Our model is completely different. It took a little while to educate investors on it. And then it just became an avalanche of capital coming into us because they're excited about innovation. And that's available to all of us that want to be GPs. Like if you have something on your heart of, I'd really love to do my business model this way, even if it's not what's typical in the model, just talk to your accountants and your attorneys and put it out there. And investors will tell you if they want it or not. They'll tell you by how much money they give you. If they give you a lot, you know you've hit something that serves their needs, that's innovative in the market. If they don't, you know you either need to educate more or keep tweaking and keep being innovative. But that's something that's like really on my heart is saying to fellow GPs, like, let us be your permission slip to be innovative. You don't have to follow the cookie cutter model if it isn't exciting to you. Does this no fee model scale. Like if you five X one and a half billion, I guess 300 million in equity or roughly based on the numbers that you shared on this podcast, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. does that still scale? Because I imagine at that point, like you're going to have to move yourself out of a lot of different roles that, that you're playing in right now, which requires hiring people and needing money to hire people. What do you do at that point? Yeah, that's an excellent question. It's one I've thought about quite a bit. So I think it does. I really do. So, you know, we've scaled to a third of a billion somewhat effortlessly. Um, A big piece of it is you have to have the vertical integration piece because without the property management company, you can't hire the staff to run the portfolio and do all of those things. So, you know, by the time my accountants are creating our P&Ls and our balance sheets and everything, like the asset management piece is like literally just a few hours on top of that. 
But if you are not the property manager, then the asset management piece is a much bigger bite to take. So that's a big piece of it is that by eliminating inefficiencies, by you know kind of consolidating the activities, that eliminates a lot of the inefficiencies that allows a smaller group of people to do the same amount of work. So I think that's a part of it. In terms of scale, like let's say, for example, you know, we wanted to hire like a director of investor relations, right? That person would probably want to be compensated fairly well. How would we pay them salary, right? So first of all, I would really seek someone who is already financially independent through their own real estate portfolio or most of the way there. So that's really important to me. It is a piece of my integrity that when we take other people's money, we say, I believe that I can really steward this money because I was successful in my own life doing it. That's really important to me. And so that would be someone that's eager to work for this future equity split and kind of, you know, I, I don't have it all baked out in my head, but the way I envision it is that equity split would come from Nick and I's 50%. So we would bring on, you know, other partners to continue to grow and grow and grow. That wouldn't take it all from our investors. But if we said, you know, hey, right now we have 50% of a $300 million portfolio, but if we bring in some key players and give them much larger equity stakes than they would be able to get at other shops, but it is delayed gratification. And that allows us to get to a billion dollar portfolio that we have a 30% equity stake in, well, that's still a huge win. That's still a much larger equity stake than almost any other GP out there. And then we're also working with people who are aligned with our values of delayed gratification, putting the investor first, having had a great deal of success in their own financial lives that allows them to have that delayed gratification. So I think those are the two pieces. is vertical integration that eliminates a lot of the redundancies and inefficiencies and then aligning ourselves with people who are eager to work for an equity stake and understand the importance of delayed gratification. Mm, that's fascinating. I wonder how that equity stake works. Like if somebody leaves your company, you know, inevitably people leave, turnover, become incapacitated mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. Does that, like, would you feel like that equity stake was still well deserved? Those are good questions. And that's why we've been, you Still know, thinking. yeah, I mean, that's why we, okay. we've been slow on the draw of bringing in yeah. you know, other, other cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. Another model we could use is to say, you know, hey, as what the current portfolio matures and we're getting our 50% split, then we have all of that additional income. We can take that additional income to pay additional salaries. And again, we're kind of pushing the can down the road, but we're growing the overall wealth of our portfolio and of our own you know, personal net worth because we're taking the profits from the earlier phases of the portfolio and putting it into growth of the future portfolio. So that would be another way that we could do it. I don't have it all kind of baked out in my mind because right now it's working you know, exactly as it, as it needs to. And we've scaled to another city and it's all, you know, making sense. But I have thought about, you know, if we want to be like a household name, if we want to be like mm-hmm. Blackstone, right? Like, how do we get there? Is it giving up our share of the equity to, to key players? Is it taking income from earlier phases of the portfolio and using that to pay salaries that then makes the overall portfolio that much bigger? It'll be one of those two options, but I think it's still several years away. Very interesting. Fascinating. Happy to wow. take your advice wow. too when, when you figure out a solution for me. <laughs> I might have some ideas. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know when I've put myself in the path of an expert. 
All right, Elaine, I can't even imagine how much value our listeners will get out of today. I think that there's a lot of key takeaways, but I wanted to end on one note here, which is what I want to end every interview with. And your firm is all very technologically minded, and so are we. And so we'd like to end with a question, and we're calling it the Streamline Spotlight. Um, So I would ask you what technology you've recently adopted to streamline your business or professional workflow that's made you more effective. Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm sure everybody's saying, you know, AI at this point. Um, ChatGPT is a game changer and really having a relationship with your ChatGPT of telling it, you know, this is my style. This is the usual sentence length I speak in. This is my usual paragraph length. Like I coach my my ChatGPT on exactly how to sound like me. And it gets a lot done, right? It gets, you know, email copy done and, and other things like that, that and you, you have to work with it, right? You can't just like cut and paste what it puts out. But if you really work with it and read it, then you go from having to create something from scratch to having to edit something and you can create higher quality pieces faster. So, you know, certainly AI and all of the other AI that's coming around images and videos and all of those things, like we are in a very, a very special time as humans. So the golden question then is, are you paying the $20 fee for ChatGPT Pro? Absolutely. I think we did like day one. I think that might be the best investment of 2023. Exactly. It's like, how could you get a better return on investment? Um, have you been using the custom instructions? Um, I'm not sure what you're referring to. So I guess maybe I'm not. All right. Well, this can be the takeaway for you then from today. The takeaway for Elaine is go ahead and use the custom instructions. You can see them in the bottom left hand. There are settings that you can set to do exactly what you're talking about so that you don't have to tell it and train it make my sentences shorter. Don't say best regards, say thanks, Elaine. That's that's my mm-hmm. favorite one because I hate how it always says best regards. You can make it so that that is baked into your chat GPT permanently so you never oh, have to say it again. Wow. Okay, I'll have to look Dylan showed that to me and I was like, wow, that's a a big unlock there. So, well, Elaine, thank you so much for spending time with us and coming on the show. If somebody wants to reach out to you and contact you, uh, how can they do so? Our website is meetblackswan.com, meetblackswan.com that has information about our company, my husband and I, our portfolio, um, links to our portfolio from the resident facing side, which I think is a lot of fun for both GPs and LPs to take a look at that. Um, We have a free monthly Zoom call that we do. We call it our community power hour. We teach on a particular real estate topic. We have our newsletter. We have a Facebook group. All sorts of resources are on there. That's all at meetblackswan.com. Awesome. Well, everybody, I know Elaine puts out a lot of great content. So go check out those resources. Thanks again for coming on. We'll see you next time. Absolutely. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast. There are three ways that you can connect with us. If you're interested in getting email updates on upcoming shows, go to www.mlrepodcast.com and subscribe there. If you'd like to explore a tax and accounting relationship with our CPA firm, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash MLRE and fill out the web form to get started. And if you'd like to connect with Dylan or I on social media, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Dylan Brown CPA or Brandon Hall CPA. Shoot us a request. We'd love to connect. We'll see you next time.